Hello world and welcome to Podcast in A Minor, where I bring you the weird little songs I write and then give you the stories behind them. Weird stories, creepy stories, funny stories, whatever the world gives us in all its glorious mystery. And now for today's opening song. Welcome to Podcast in A Minor. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and an artist, and I'm in one of my moods. You just heard Little Drunken Ghost on the Daisy Rock Rock Candy Electric Guitar with Rap Pedal Distortion. And here are the lyrics. Hey, 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 Little Drunken Ghost. Eyes wide and childish pride on mischief night. You're a friend of mine. Well on your way to being crowned most horrible, with your dulcet screams and flapping jacket seams, most horrible forever. It's 1903, the night of Halloween, just a small handful of flour right in the face, like you promised your mother. That's the way, little drunken ghost, you killed the old guy with a cloud of flour to the eyes, never more to poison the cats. You run away and merrily he laughs, you're the most horrible forever. Okay, before you get all up in arms about a little inebriated ghost child, relax. This song is entirely inspired by a sparkling little Halloween scene in the 1944 musical film Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland. Judy Garland, yes, but every sister in the film is a blessing of presence and energy, especially the two youngest, Agnes, played by Joan Carroll, and Tootie, played by Margaret O'Brien. Before we get into it, let me say that I've still never watched Meet Me in St. Louis from start to finish. I used to play the trolley song sung by Judy Garland on my college radio show occasionally in between angst-riddled 90s dirges, and here's what I know. The movie is about an upper-class St. Louis family with four daughters, and they're preparing to move to New York for their dad's job, but nobody wants to. Meanwhile, the St. Louis World's Fair is coming up, 1904, where the ice cream cone was invented by necessity when an ice cream maker ran out of dishes and bought a load of waffles from the nearby waffle stand and scooped his ice cream into it. 
All of this is near and dear, too, because I worked at Washington University in St. Louis as receptionist of the math department for two years, and the math office was located in Couples One Hall, which had been built around the time of the 1904 World's Fair and housed the mummy exhibit. Spooky. Anyway, more than a decade later, I'd fallen into kind of a bummer life chapter, and Halloween was coming. I was trying to capture its magic and poetry and atmosphere and take myself out of my current scene, and I stumbled on someone's blog testimony that they didn't like two scary movies at Halloween, and they declared the Halloween scene from Meet Me in St. Louis perfect for its innocence, old-time shenanigans, and just haunting enough setting. I followed their YouTube link, and it was just the thing. But I haven't found that scene on YouTube recently. A loss, but I'll tell it here as best I can. The scene begins at dusk, with the second oldest sister, Rose, in the upstairs bedroom, smudging grimy makeup on her younger sisters, Agnes and Tootie. They're telling Rose of their plans to get revenge on old Mr. Prokoff of the neighborhood this Halloween because they suspect him of poisoning cats. Rose can't believe it. He seems like such a quiet old man. But Tootie explains, he buys meat, then he buys poison, and then he mixes them together. She claims that Johnny somebody or other saw a box through Mr. Brockhoff's window and it was full of dead cats. Mr. Brockhoff later planned to burn them in his furnace. And he was beating his wife with a red-hot poker. It's all scandalous, down to the cellar full of whiskey bottles that Agnes chided Tootie about because Tootie had sworn not to tell. Tootie declares defiantly that she had crossed her fingers with her left hand, a jack-o'-lantern ogles on the sidelines. Having been made sufficiently terrifying, Agnes and Tootie move on to the kitchen to scare Katie, the cook. Katie, while decorating an elaborate Halloween cake, at least pretends to be terror-stricken and declares, Agnes, I thought you were a drunken ghost. Now Agnes is the older of the two sisters, around nine or ten years old, I'm guessing, and here's where I confess to mixing up their costumes in my mind over the last eight or ten years, and again while writing the opening song this week. Thinking the little one was the drunken ghost, so funny. That kid is a treat. I believe it's in the opening scene of the movie where she's riding on the ice wagon with her friend, the Iceman, telling him that her doll has four fatal diseases. The Iceman shakes his head, and all it takes is one. Later in the movie, in the torments of planning the move out of town, Tootie laments that she'll have to dig up all of her dolls from their graves in the backyard. Such a morbid little mite. Anyway, back in the kitchen... Agnes confirms that she is a drunken ghost. I am, says Agnes, and Tootie chimes in. Tootie's like six years old. She's a drunken ghost, and I'm a horrible ghost. She was murdered in a den of thieves, and I died of a broken heart, and I've never even been buried because everyone is too scared to come near me. Agnes, the drunken ghost, looks like a soot-faced pirate ghost in a tricorn hat, and often she adds a grinning skull mask to her outfit. Horrible. And Tootie is all done up in sad, ragged clothing and smudges and a fake nose with, like, mustache tufts of hair hanging from it. The butler or somebody comes along and tells them they wouldn't catch him out on a night like this for a million dollars. That's 1903 dollars. And their eyes grow wide and cautious as they creep out into a night like this. 
They meet the neighborhood kids, a whole mob of them, none of them older than 12, surely, just hopping around a big old bonfire of their own making. In fact, they're still making it, breaking up crates and stuff and throwing them on. The ringleader is a boy with a painted-on mustache and beard, wearing a generously-breasted showgirl costume, so probably he's the bearded lady from the circus or something. He's organizing the hijinks, trying to convince every passing hooligan to take the Brockhoff place. But nah, nah, they're taking the Miltons or whoever, or anybody but the Brockhoffs. Tootie, of course, is dismissed as too little to participate, and no one will even let her throw any rubbish on the big bonfire, poor little squirt. Agnes tells her firmly to stay here and heads out into the fray. So Tootie realizes it is up to her to take the Brockhoffs. She has brought her own flower. Back in the kitchen scene, she has collected some specifically for pranking, and her mother has asked her not to go overboard with it. Just a small handful right in the face, Tootie promised. The idea is to, quote, kill the victim. To do so on Mischief Night, you have to knock on the door, throw flour in their face, and say, I hate you! Otherwise, says the bearded lady kid, your banshee will haunt you for the rest of your days. Tootie trudges forth, making herself brave in the darkness and down the long path to the Brockhoffs. The houses are far apart. The Brockhoffs seem isolated. Tootie stops at the pillars that bookend the path, looking for all the world like cemetery monuments. She slowly climbs the steps to the porch. You can see through the window that Mr. Brockhoff is reading the newspaper out loud to his wife. Tootie screws up her courage and rings the doorbell. A twirling bell in the center of the door, old style, and Mr. Brockhoff opens the door. There stands Tootie, horrible ghost, eyes like full moons, and Brockhoff prompts her sternly, Well? Tootie takes a deep breath, says, I hate you, Mr. Brockhoff, and throws flour in his face. Then she runs away. Mr. Brockhoff's all like, Phew! When the flower hits him, and as Tootie flees, he wipes his face with his handkerchief and laughs silently with little shoulder action. He was a boy once, after all. It might sound harsh to our ears nowadays, that is, unkind, to make light of the drunken and horrible, and to yell out your hatred to a neighbor flinging flour into their eyes. But, you know, you know, get a load of these kids and their doll graveyards just running loose on Halloween, stoking the bonfire after promising mother to only throw a tiny handful of flour right in the face when knocking on doors. Uh, at some point in the movie, the two younger sisters find a dress and stuff it and throw it on the trolley tracks for a prank, which could have hurt a lot of people. And then they call their older sister stuck up when she was horrified about it. I guess this is the uh, era of Newsies and Maggie, a girl of the streets, rugged times. But Meet Me in St. Louis definitely provides a time capsule of earlier Halloweens and allows that girls were just as rowdy and horrible as boys. And good atmosphere. After the killing, Agnes presents Tootie to the gang. Listen, Tootie killed Mr. Brockhoff, single-handed. Tootie is the most horrible. And Tootie is declared the most horrible. Everybody chants it with her, and she is elated. Okay, for the next segment of our Little Drunken Ghost episode featuring fun, slightly creepy, but wide-eyed innocent Halloween scenes, I'm going to read from A Halloween Party by Annie Fellows Johnston, which I found in the book of American Traditions, Stories, Customs, and Rites of Passage to Celebrate Our Cultural Heritage by Emile Jenkins. Uh, 
And um, Annie Fellows Johnston wrote the uh, Little Colonel book. So if you remember Shirley Temple being in a Little Colonel movie or two, I don't know how many there were. There were a whole series of books. And the one that this story is from is The Little Colonel's Holidays, which was originally published in 1901. And so I'm going to read just a few parts of the Halloween story, A Halloween Party. Nothing worse than rats and spiders haunted the old house of Hartwell Hollow, but set far back from the road in a tangle of vines and cedars, it looked lonely and neglected enough to give rise to almost any report. The long unused road, winding among the rockeries from gate to house, was hidden by a rank growth of grass and mullein. From one of the trees beside it, an aged grapevine swung down its long snaky limbs as if a bunch of giant serpents had been caught up in a writhing mass and left to dangle from treetop to earth. Cobwebs veiled the windows, and dead leaves had drifted across the porches until they lay knee-deep in some of the corners. As Miss Allison paused in front of the doorstep with the keys, a snake glided across her path and disappeared in one of the tangled rockeries. "'It won't hurt you, Sylvia,' said Miss Allison, laughingly. "'An old poet who owned this place when I was a child "'made pets of all the snakes "'and even brought some up from the woods "'as he did the wildflowers. "'That is perfectly harmless kind.'" Mrs. Sherman had driven down some time before with a carriage load of jack-o'-lanterns and was now arranging them in rows on all the old-fashioned black mantles. Fires were blazing on every hearth in parlor, dining room, and hall to dissipate the dampness of the long, unused rooms. A kettle was singing on the kitchen stove, and tables and chairs had been brought over and arranged in the empty rooms. All that the woods could contribute in the way of crimson berries, trailing vines, and late autumn leaves had been brought in to brighten the bare walls and festoon the uncurtained windows. The chestnuts, the apples, the tubs of water, the lead, and everything else necessary for the working of the charms was in readiness. The refreshments were in the pantry, and on the kitchen table, Lloyd, nicknamed the Little Colonel, was arranging the ingredients for the fate cake. The wind was blowing in fitful gusts, rustling the dead leaves and swaying the snaky branches of the grapevine until they seemed startlingly alive. Now and then the moon looked out like a pale, bleared eye. It is a real Tam O'Shanter night, said Miss Allison, as she led the way up the winding walk to the front door. I can easily imagine witches flying over my head, can't you? She asked, turning to the little group surrounding her. I'm glad that everybody is coming early, said Lloyd, so that we can begin the fate cake. That was the first performance. When the guests had all arrived, they were taken into the kitchen. Under the ban of silence, for the speaking of a word would have broken the charm, they stood around the table, giggling as the cake was concocted, out of a cup of salt, a cup of flour, and enough water to make a thick batter. A ring, a thimble, a dime, and a button were dropped into it, and each guest gave the mixture a solemn stir before the pan was put into the oven and left in charge of old Mom Beck. By that time, the two tubs of water had been carried into the hall. Several dozen apples were set afloat in them, with a folded strip of paper pinned to each bearing a hidden name. By the time these had been lifted out by their stems in the teeth of the laughing contestants, the lead was melted and ready to use. They tried their fate with that next, pouring a little out into a plate of water to see into what shapes the drops would instantly harden. Strangely enough, Ronald's took the shape of a sword, Malcolm's was a lion and Keith's a ship, and the little colonel's a star and Rob's a spur. Some could have been called almost anything, like the one little Elise found in her plate. 
She could not decide whether to call it a sugar bowl or a chicken, but Miss Allison explained them all, giving some funny meaning to each, and setting them all to laughing with the queer fortunes she declared these lead drops predicted. They all tried the old customs they had ever heard of. They popped chestnuts on a shovel. They counted apple seeds. They threw the pairings over their heads to see what initials they would form in falling. They blindfolded each other and groped across the room to the table, on which stood three saucers, one filled with ashes, one with water, and one standing empty, to see whether life, death, or single blessedness awaited them in the coming year. So that story, the Halloween party is heavy on the fortune telling, using lead and water and apple peels to throw over their shoulder and see what initials it, you know, the person they were going to marry. And you can find more of these fortune telling games in the book of Halloween by Ruth Edna Kelly, um, which I mentioned last week. And it tells you how to find, you know, cabbage and what you're, if you just pull the first stock of cabbage, that's going to somehow indicate what kind of person you're going to marry because is it sweet or bitter? And then there's one where if you pick some ivy and put it on a glass in your put it in a glass on your nightstand and then the next morning if it's spotted you're going to be sick in the coming year and if it dies or withers you are going to die in the coming year and if it's healthy you're going to have blooming health all year long. So that is the kind of fun that people have gotten up to in different times and places at Halloween. And so that's going to wrap us up for this Halloween episode of Podcast in A Minor. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Happy Halloween. Mrs. Sherman had driven down some time before. <coughs> oh, with a carriage load of jack-o'-lanterns. Musta, musta, the Encyclopedia Neurotica. It's my rule in the plan. I must, and I must, and I must.